I am Charlene Leslie, and this is my story. When I was first asked to share this story, I was very resistant. This story is not the best example of me as a faithful Christ follower. A few years ago, prior to me coming to Lakeland, my husband died unexpectedly following a stroke. He was an amazing man, an amazing husband, and my best friend. We had been married just short of 35 years. Getting married before either of us had finished school, we literally grew up together. Losing him was debilitating. I felt like I had lost an essential part of myself, like I had lost an appendage, maybe my legs or an arm. The loss of my lifelong companion was felt in every aspect of my life, sleeping, eating, day-to-day living, everything. My heart literally was in pain. It was as if it had been torn in two, and it was bleeding, and that I was attempting to walk, but slipping and sliding and falling in my own blood. Simple things like putting one foot in front of another, getting up in the morning, was so difficult. While my body was in physical pain, my mind was literally numb. I felt as if I was somewhat in shell shock, but not from a bullet or some gunpowder explosion, but by God himself. To me, God had betrayed me by taking my husband. I couldn't understand it. After all the things I had done for him, for all the things that both of us had done for him, he hadn't kept his end of the bargain. You see, we had been heavily involved in our church, serving as Sunday school teachers for both children and adults, and much later as youth directors. And as the kids we served aged, and at the request of our pastor, we've became youth ministers and then later facilitated premarital training and eventually marriage retreats under the direction of an outside minister who was also a clinical psychologist. In fact, both my husband and I were contemplating seminary. But with the death of my husband, I felt as if God betrayed me, or maybe, maybe I was being properly punished because Everything we had done in serving him was wrong or at his displeasure. I was sure he didn't truly care about me, much less that he loved me. I must have done something wrong, terribly wrong. I was crushed, abandoned, broken. Thank goodness for my dear and amazing group of friends. Girlfriends who sat with me and oftentimes whisked me away. On one such trip, we went to a small town who was having some sort of festival. The retail shops were having sidewalk sales. I remember walking around in a fog, but on the arm of a friend. When in the near distance, I saw this doll 
This doll was about 30 inches tall. And as I approached her, I could see that she didn't have any legs. Instead, her bodice was set on some sort of conical stand or frame. And upon examining her closer, I saw she didn't have an arm either. It had broken off between the shoulder and her elbow. It hit me that she looked exactly as I felt. She must have known how I felt. I was immediately compelled to purchase her. Maybe God didn't love me, but this inanimate doll sure did. I carefully picked her up and carried her inside. The store clerk responded by telling me how happy she was that someone was taking her home, and she began wrapping her up in tissue. Oh, she said, I almost forgot. I have her arm. Let me wrap that up for you, too. Maybe you can put her back together. I smiled or attempted to and thought that was appropriate, too, because my friends had been holding me in my broken arm in some tissue. As I was exiting the store, the clerk called out to me. Wait, wait! Come back! I forgot something else. She took the doll from me and unwrapped the tissue. There's more, she said, and she quickly ran to the back room. I stood there looking at her, thinking how much I loved this little doll that certainly had to love me because she too was broken and alone. The clerk came back. Here it is, she said. She comes with this. And she brought out a large pair of metal wings and placed them on her back. She's an angel, not just some doll. An angel, I said. Yeah, a messenger of God. Memory verses came to my mind and my tears began to roll and some floodgate was burst as I felt that God was telling me of his love and his providence. In his mercy, he had sent me an attendant of sorts, an attendant to remind me that I was loved and watched over. No matter that I couldn't grasp how deep or how wide, even if I didn't understand what was happening in my life, God was with me. Emmanuel. Today, that doll sits on my fireplace hearth. Her arm has been repaired and reattached, but that's a different story. I see her daily, and although I may have bouts of doubt from time to time, she admonishes me that God cares about me so much that he gave me her as a physical remembrance. And she reminds me that the Christian life isn't about me performing or serving or my works of righteousness, but about him, his grace, and his amazing love. I'm Charlene Leslie, and this is my story.
Our whole series is about the extraordinary ways that God speaks. It's only five days now till Christmas Eve. In our Christmas story, we're in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. What a dark turn the Christmas story takes at this, at this point. Can you imagine soldiers going into a small village and going door to door looking for boys two years old and under and killing them? Archaeologists believe there may have only been 20 such boys in a village the size of Bethlehem at that time. And none of the parents know why this is happening. And when the soldiers leave, they're left with what they're left with. What pain and anguish they must have felt for years and years to come. Pain is felt most keenly at Christmas time. You didn't need me to tell you that. The pursuit of happiness, our whole culture is supposed to be built on it, and yet how hard it is to do. I mean, you just get where you think you're ahead financially, and then something happens to give you yet another expense. You just get the kids past the helpless diaper stage, and then they go to school and have trouble in school. And then you just get their feet under them in school and they become angsty teenagers and they don't like you anymore. And then you just get through the angsty teenager stage and they move away. You just get to that place where you can travel and do the things you want to do. And your health or the health of a family member won't let you. The Messiah is just born. And soldiers come trying to kill him. Is there even such a thing as happiness for real? Matthew says in our scripture that uh, Herod's brutality fulfills a prophecy given by Jeremiah. It's from Jeremiah 31 actually. Now he quotes just one line of the prophecy. But it's actually most of a chapter. And I wonder if in quoting that one line, Matthew meant for us to remember the whole prophecy. Let me read you the first three lines. A cry is heard in Ramah, deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer. For I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you. 
From the distant land of the enemy, there is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again into their own land. And in fact, the whole chapter continues on that way, in joy and hope. You see, in the, in the, in the Old Testament, they consider the two greatest miracles of God to be when God rescued the people from slavery in Egypt and when God let the people come home from exile, which is what Jeremiah is talking about. And now Matthew takes those two and says, and now comes the third greatest rescue God's ever done. The Messiah, Jesus. He's going to come back from this fleeing and he's going to save us all from our sins. All three of God's greatest rescues start with a profound hope, a lack of hope and despair that end in a great joy. I want to tell you about fireworks season in North Texas. So in North Texas, where I spent every summer as a kid, they start selling fireworks June 1st. Now we were, were dirt poor, dirt poor. So we could not afford aerial displays. If one of the cousins could get Roman candles, we thought, who does he think he is? Um, what we could afford was firecrackers. And so we would walk up to the fireworks stand every day and buy firecrackers. And what we did with those firecrackers is we stuck them into fire ant nests. Now, I know to you Yankees, by the way, that's what Texans call everyone who lives north of Oklahoma. Some of you are nodding. You've been there. For you Yankees, that sounds like animal cruelty. And it is. Okay, I confess it. But you got to put yourself in the mind of a 12-year-old. To children in North Texas, fire ants are the enemy. This is a fire ant nest. It's roughly the size of this rug I'm standing on, maybe this whole stage that I'm standing on. And when you're a kid and you first move to Texas and you see that, you think, oh, that that is like a, a sandbox in the middle of a grassy field. That would be a fun place to play with my Tonka trucks. And so you plop down and for about 30 seconds. And then all of your body is suddenly on fire. And the only thing that saves you is one grown-up who's done this rite of passage before, who grabs you up and throws you in the bathtub, clothes and everything, and drowns hundreds of attacking fire ants. In North Texas, when you take off your shoes at the end of the day, you have to flick all the ants off your shoelaces. You picked them up during the day, and they bit on there, and they hang on and sting your shoes all day long. They never give up. Fire ants can hold their own. You stick a stick in the hole of a fire ant nest, they will run up the stick and make a ball at the tip of it to tip it over and get it out of there. And no matter how many firecrackers and smoke balls you stick into that nest and blow it full of craters, they completely fix it all by morning. Every war with fire ants ends in a stalemate. And it gives a bunch of poor 12-year-olds something to do for six straight weeks. (laughs) There is joy in that sandy dirt of a fire ant nest. Let me tell you about my folks' uh, divorce. Um, my brother and I, we actually we were separated for five years of our childhood. We only saw each other during summers and school breaks. Um, we met halfway in Oklahoma. My mom lived in Texas and, and dad lived up here. Well, one Easter, she called and said, it's just a three-day weekend. I'm not bringing your brother up. We're not going to meet halfway. It's just too far. She'd moved deeper into Texas, Longview, East Texas. My dad was irate, but he checked the divorce decree, and sure enough, we were actually only guaranteed summer and Christmas. 
my grandmother was beside herself. So they got together, my dad and grandma, and they decided, we'll just drive the whole distance. We'll make the nine-hour drive all the way to Longview for a three-day weekend. So one day of driving, one day together, one day to drive back. Until my grandma decided, we'll just drive through the night on Thursday night. She bought us two days. So there we were at a motel on Easter weekend in Longview, Texas. What do we do? It was Easter of 1985. I can tell you that with authority because that was the year uh, Hasbro... Why am I crying? <laughs> that was the year Hasbro released their uh, 1985 line of G.I. Joe and Cobra action figures, which still for collectors today is considered the best release of that toy line. And so we had those fistful of toys and a motel room. So we go out behind the motel room and they had done some earth moving a couple of years ago, probably to build the motel we were in. And they left two giant piles of dirt, each one the size of a house. And they were as far apart as this room is wide. And they'd been there just long enough for a little grass and some small trees on top. But you had to hike up to the... Well, one dirt pile became G.I. Joe headquarters. And one dirt pile became Cobra's Snake Mountain. And for two days, we ran sorties of planes and helicopters and tanks and hovercraft battles back and forth. And my brother and I will both tell you separately that we remember that as far as toys go as the best day we ever had playing with toys. Brought to you by two giant piles of dirt. Let me tell you how I messed up our family vacation one time. So we were broke one year. Things had not gone well. My wife and I decided we still need a family vacation. This family needs to get out of here. So she found some really cheap tickets to um, Amtrak to downtown St. Louis. Then we could get off the train and walk to a motel. We didn't even need to pay for gas or rent a car. There was tons of stuff to do within walking distance of this motel in St. Louis. So museums and restaurants and fun stuff. Well, the kids could see the arch and they wanted to go to the arch. Now that was like a zillion blocks away, but you could walk it if you took all morning. So the last day we were there, we did the long walk through the heat and got to the arch. It's closed that day. So we walked all that distance, and I thought the only reason we don't have a car is because we're broke. And now I didn't even know that the arch would be closed today. Like, I've really made a wreck of all of this. So I'm pretty desperate to try to put on a good face. So I'm like, hey, kids, there's the Mississippi River. So we walked down to the Mississippi River. Now, right there, the Mississippi deposits um, a lot of sand, so it's kind of like a beach. I mean, it's really just really dirty sand, but it's kind of, okay, there it is. And so, but my son, he rushes right out to it. He starts digging holes in it. He buries his feet. He buries his legs. Pretty soon, he just resorts to scooping up fistfuls of it, throwing it up in the air, and then he just closed his eyes and let it rain down on him. And he did that for half an hour. And finally, he got so exhausted, he just collapsed. And he looks at us and he says, Mom, Dad, this is the best vacation ever. From dirty sand on the bank of the Mississippi. Do you know what all these stories have in common? Dirt. Pure joy 
found in dirt. See, that's what makes joy different than happiness is it's not dependent on your circumstances. Joy is often in spite of your circumstances. And joy is everywhere and you can't take it away. You're too poor for real fireworks? That's fine. God encodes joy into fire ant nests. Uh, your family's not all together? That's all right. You have to cram six months worth of childhood into two days? God provides a couple of dirt piles where you can make the best memory of your whole childhood. Um, you can't get your family act together for vacation? That's all right. The Mississippi River has made you a beach. It's been working on it a few thousand years. There it is. Joy is an act of defiance. Joy says, yeah, everything's not together right now, but I still have joy. The prophet said, do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. Now, I want to tell you that this joy of the Lord It's big enough to stand up against even the big bads. It's big enough even to stand up against death and evil. So my mom died in 2019. And we uh, held her funeral in the front yard of her farm. But my wife, ever wise, she booked us a VRBO for three days after the funeral there in Texas. And so we had a pool for the kids and we had a nice place to stay. My brother, his family, and me and my family. And uh, then we got the idea, why don't we go around to all these places where we used to live? So on the playground equipment that he got to play on when he was their age, we even found a fire ant nest on a sidewalk. And we started sharing memories and we just had a really good time. And then we thought the last day we were there, why don't we make our joy complete? Let's go to Goatman's Bridge. Now, I know to you Yankees, Goatman's Bridge doesn't mean much, but it's only the most haunted place in Denton, Texas. So we go out to Goatman's Bridge, and since we're grown-ups, we go at night. And we cross the bridge. On the other side, there's all these sandy trails going through the woods. And they have giant spider webs over them, which we didn't realize, but so it's a lot like The Hobbit. And, um, and we just ran around, of course, scaring each other in the dark and... We found there were some other teenagers out there doing the same thing that we were doing. I may or may not have made some goat noises in the dark. (laughs) We got the trails to ourselves again. And and we just laughed and told a lot of, of stories about growing up there. And my stepdad, who was with us, who of course had lost everything. He started sharing stories too, because he had he had truly grown up in that area. And he and my mom used to come and sit out and Listen, the teenagers scare each other in the woods. And there was joy on the sandy trails at Goatman's Bridge. I'm telling you, this joy of God can even face off against the biggest evils men can think of. Ravensbrück, concentration camp, Nazi Germany, World War II. It's a concentration camp for women. Corrie ten Boom and her sister Betsy are sentenced there. Two Christian women in their 50s, they'd been hiding Jews in a secret room in their attic. And they got caught. And they got sent 
to Ravensbrück. They're taken into a dorm and they a barracks, and they immediately realize that the floor is moving. It's covered in fleas. They pull back the bed and a blackness of fleas runs and hides from the light. And Betsy, the sister, says, Corey, let us kneel and pray. And Corey says, why? She says, because the word says we must give thanks in all circumstances. And so they kneel in a barracks in a concentration camp. And Betsy prays, Lord, we thank you that the Jews we were hiding were not found. Lord, we thank you that we are alive. They did not kill us. Lord, we thank you for this barracks. We will have a wall and, 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 and a roof this winter. Lord, we thank you for these beds. We will not have to sleep on the floor. Lord, we thank you for these fleas. At this point, her sister's had enough. She's like, Betsy, do not thank God for the fleas. Her sister says, we must thank God in all circumstances. <laughs> she finishes her prayer with the fleas. So these women, they're assigned to repair socks for the SS. So when a soldier or officer's socks wear out, they go to these barracks. These women have to sew them closed again. So these women, some of them snuck Bibles in. So they start having Bible studies while they're sitting around sewing socks. And no one ever comes in and finds the Bibles. So they start having prayer services, reading scripture. They even sing hymns. No one ever hears them and comes to stop them. Women pray to accept Christ in this barracks. In the middle of this hellish concentration camp, there is a light of joy that comes from God in these barracks. One day, Betsy comes rushing in from running an errand. Although she was sick, she's full of energy. She says, Corey, you'll never believe what I heard the soldiers say today. She says, what? And Betsy says, you know how we've wondered, how do we have Bible studies in here and never get caught? How do we have prayer services and worship in here and no one ever comes to stop us? I'll tell you why. I heard the soldiers talking about it. It's because of the fleas. They're all so afraid that they're going to get infested with fleas. None of them will come near these barracks. The very filth of that place is what protected their joy. The joy of Christmas is a real and a powerful thing and it is in everything. It's in the dirt. It's in the fleas. It's bigger than King Herod. It's bigger than Adolf Hitler. It's bigger than any darkness you or I could face this year. Now, I don't mean for this message to rush you out of mourning. If you're just coming in to your dark place, and you need to mourn if you are angry, if you are confused. It's okay. It is okay. In fact, God is with you there also. His word says that God is near to the brokenhearted. But someday, someday, when you're ready for just a little joy, I just want you to remember that everything doesn't have to be back together again. That joy is waiting for you and it's in the dirt. And it's in this candle. And it's in the light. It's in the Christmas story.
But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. And of course, the Hebrew word for land is also the same word for dirt. They will come again to their own dirt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for joy. And we thank you that we don't have to be rich enough or smart enough to have it. It is freely given. I pray we will look for your joy today in the simple things. We give you thanks for this Christmas season. May it be one of those simple things for everyone this year. In the name of Christ Jesus, whom we celebrate today, we pray. Amen.